You're listening to Conversations with a Musicologist with me, Alex Burns. Episode 5, Inspirational Composition. This episode includes an update on the German-speaking musical Groats project with German specialist Freya Riding, plus an exclusive interview with composer and teacher Daniel Salib to talk all things composition, inspirations and future plans. So for this podcast, I'm joined by the very same German specialist, Freya Riding, to talk all things German, including the music of Johann Strauss II and January's instalment of our German-speaking musical greats project. So thanks for joining me again, Freya. Let's talk about January's composer of the month, Johann Strauss II. So, why him? I chose Johann Strauss II because his music is just so elegant. To me, it um, perfectly represents this idea of Viennese elegance. And what better composer to bring us into the new year than Johann Strauss himself? Um, It's uh, very common for his music and the music of his family to be performed at the Viennese uh, New Year's concert. Their waltzes and polkas and mazurkas uh, are featured really heavily in these programmes and they bring them into the new year every year. So happy new year indeed then for Strauss, what a great choice. And so for for this uh, project, you chose to translate blogs on Die Fledermaus Overture and the Blue Danube, which is obviously a big favourite around the world. Um, and I chose to write about Trish Trash Polka and Tausend und Einernacht. Uh, so what made you choose your two? Well, as you just said, the Blue Danube is so heavily programmed and, and so well loved around the world. Um, and also, um, you often hear Die Fledermaus Overture being um, performed by orchestras. I think both of these uh, pieces demonstrate this idea of um, Johann Strauss being a very elegant and very uh, a very elegant composer that creates very beautiful music. Yeah, absolutely. I found the same because I wanted to write about Trish Trash Polka because you wrote about a waltz and I just wanted to see the different kind of way that he wrote for different dances, really. And I found that really interesting. And then I chose uh, Tausend and Einer Nacht because you chose an operetta. So I chose an operetta, but in a slightly different kind of form. So I thought that was kind of complimented your choices, I hope anyway. Um, and dancing is like a real, really central theme for January's Composer of the Month. And Strauss was known as the king of waltzes. So why do you think he wrote so many waltzes and polkas? I imagine that he wrote so many waltzes and polkas because of the influence and importance of dancing at the time. Uh, dancing and music uh, together played such a crucial role in people's social life, particularly in Vienna. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, with the the Blue Danube in particular, it's just, it stood the test of time, hasn't it? People love it every time it comes on. And what kind of connotations do you get from that piece of music? Um, So whenever I hear the Blue Danube, I often hear it as an encore. Um, It's often used at the end of an orchestral set or at the end of perhaps a prom set in summer. Um, And there's something so familiar and comforting about the music itself. And I really enjoy how um, when it's used as an encore, the the last section gets faster and faster and faster and you you push sort of the limitations of the orchestra. That's really interesting because I think Strauss um, did play quite a lot to that kind of comedic style as well as writing for more kind of serious dances. And I really, I found that with the Blue Danube, that especially 
as you said, in kind of performance, it can be sped up and people have that comfort with it. But it's also kind of funny at the same time because that's kind of how you react to it. Um, and we also both chose to write about operettas. Um, so Deflader Mouse and some melodic material from Indigo und die Witzer Rauber. Um, and it was really popular at that time for composers to take musical content from their shows and orchestrate them into suites so that they could become more accessible to the general public because it was so expensive to go and see operas and operettas. And obviously these composers really wanted their music to reach as many people as possible. Whereas um, Die Fledermaus is part of a show and sets the scene for the operetta. So I found it really interesting how they're both kind of made up um, where Die Fledermaus is just lots of themes, waltzes and polkas, just one after the other, just knocking them out. Whereas um, Tausend und Einernacht thought a bit more about how he was going to thread together themes for this kind of orchestral thing that he wrote. How did you find the difference between the two? Yeah, I found this difference uh, really interesting. It's almost as if you wrote uh, um, the first one, Tausend Nine and Nacht, to be it's a standalone piece uh, to be played outside of the the context of the operetta. Whereas the Deflader Mouse Overture, despite it being so popular, um, I should imagine he didn't imagine this to become a, an individual piece. He thought it would become something that was part of the operetta itself. And I really like how in Deflader Mouse um, Overture how you have these constant quick changes between sort of comedic elements, uh, swirling strings, um, as you wrote about, that sort of represent this, um, the idea of alcohol throughout the operetta and how you have uh, short flavours of all the different things that are to come within the operetta itself. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really kind of light piece of music, isn't it? Even in the kind of darker sections, there's still a real lightness and a kind of comedic edge, which is, you know, kind of quintessential operettas, I suppose. It's light music, it's it's easy to listen to. So, I mean, Strauss was kind of leading the way to what was going to become really popular in, like, Broadway shows where um, they would, for the overtures, they would literally just take kind of big tune, big tune, big tune and just knock them out so the people would, you know, the audience would get an, a real taste of what was to come. And I feel like he did this with Die Mouse in particular. I mean, obviously, as you said, uh, Tausend und Einernacht was written as an orchestral piece you know, inspired by his operetta, whereas this is an actual overture. And I, I think he really was actually leading the way for something that was really popular and what was to come, I suppose. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. Um, so next month, we'll be looking into German-American composer Ruth Schoenthal and her eclectic range of piano and chamber music. So are you looking forward to this next challenge? Yeah, definitely. She's a very interesting composer and I'd never really explored her music properly before. I've, yeah, I've done a bit of reading of her already and uh, there's some really interesting links that just so happen to be in this uh, project as well with um, our first composer of the month, Paul Hindemith. So you've got all that to look forward to. Um, and Freya will be back with me next month to talk all things Ruth Schoenthal and how we're going to approach writing about Beethoven for March's instalment of the German-speaking Musical Greats project. <laughs> Joining me on this month's podcast is contemporary composer Daniel Salib. I caught up with him this week to talk about how he writes music, his inspirations and what we can look forward to from him in 2020. (laughs) 
So joining me on today's podcast is composer, orchestrator and all-round general musician, Daniel Salib. Uh, it's really great for you to join me today. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we're going to be chatting about composing and all sorts of musicianship, and I'm really excited to be honest. So um, first things first, composition. Yeah. How do you approach it? Wow. Uh, big question. How do I approach it? Um, so it changes. It's changed for me over time, I guess. Mm. I think every piece is different. Um, every piece for me has had a different approach, different process. Um, I Let's see, what, what kind of things do I do every time? Um, I normally, well, if I'm working with a text, Quite often stick that on the wall. Mm. That's one beginning. It's uh, a good start point of for approach. sure. <laughs> That's something so I can see what I'm doing. Um, normally, I I compose at the piano with manuscript paper, um, and I guess in most cases there's a sort of um, back and forth back and forth process between manuscript and Sibelius. I spend mm -hmm. a lot of time working in Sibelius. Mm. I've had lots of long nights. I um, bet, yeah. <laughs> typesetting. Um, what other th sort of things? Um, gen I mean, in a general way, I suppose I normally I normally need some kind of uh, extra musical inspiration mm -hmm. to write a piece. I'm not I'm not really the sort of person that is purely interested in. Um, kind of um theoretical formal music and music mm -hmm. for the, for the sake of you know musical process is that why a lot of your works are kind of based around text and yeah. theater and, and opera and stuff like theater, that definitely um text it just so happens that i've worked a lot with text mm -hmm. um pro i think probably a symptom of that feeling that i need some kind something to latch on to mm -hmm. um so um so then when I'm working without text, I've done a few pieces without text, some organ stuff um, and some chamber music. Um, when I'm working without text, um, I tend to need something, like some kind of conceptual something to, mm -hmm. to get me going. Yeah. Like I, I wrote a piece not that long ago, which I actually performed in Sheffield, was um, Scales at Six. Oh, yeah. Um, and that, that, to start with, I mean, I knew what the brief was because I was writing for a pupil of mine, a violin pupil of mine and her mother and brother as a piano oh. trio. And um, I, I knew uh, the, what roughly what ability I was writing for, but I didn't yet have a kind of um, some kind of narrative or, or some conceptual um, basis for the piece. But gradually it became about our relationship and about... Um, it's partly about childhood, about remembering something, about nostalgia. And it was partly about um, pedagogy, in a way, because mm. it, it was part of my teaching, something I'm increasingly interested in. So so scales became part of the piece. And I guess that's where the, the musical uh, that makes process yeah. comes in. And then there was a harmonic process that, that was essentially a metaphor for um, going somewhere on a journey and then looking back from the point that you get to. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting, actually. I really like that piece. I heard it when it was performed in Sheffield. And I I said, I remember saying to someone, it sounded nostalgic and I wasn't sure why, but now I, now that it's sort of like a full circle moment, I really like that. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So when it comes from inspiration and stuff, yeah. is it, 
I mean, obviously you can't just say yes or no to this question, but more of where does inspiration come from for you? Is it usually based on stuff that you've done, relationships, or do you use art and more kind of visual cues? Is there anything in particular you lean towards? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Moving on. No, no, no. no. Uh, uh, no, So it's, I've always found that really difficult question because Mm. um, it's, it's another thing that has changed, not changed, but it's kind of always changing in relation to whatever piece I'm writing at the time or whatever um, stage I'm at in life, whatever's happening. So when I was, um, so yeah, for a start, I I tend to try to kind of assimilate all sorts of different things and try to draw on mm-hmm. whatever, film especially, I love film, um, music, of course, whatever I'm reading, theatre, opera, all of those things. Um, But yeah, I would say even from my school days to now, you know, there have been, I can probably chart each um, influences related to each piece. So they're like kind of little nodes in the history of Mm. of my like gradual progression to now, you know, wherever I am now. I guess that keeps the excitement in composition in general anyway, because Mm. you never know, I guess, in a way, what might come next you might plan no, for stuff exactly. you might be commissioned for stuff but i guess this kind of inherent development of being mm. a composer must be really exciting actually yeah do you think well i mean i think we might talk about it at some point um but recently i've been working uh with an indian classical musician mm. and that's something that's just come out of nowhere you know i wasn't expecting to suddenly dive into this tradition yeah um but inevitably you kind of uh, as a cr- creative person or as a, cre- a creator of stuff, you tend to just take whatever is useful to you. And that happened at this point in my life to be really inspiring. And, and now there's this, there's all this residual um, stuff that, that's there with me that I'm, I now feel um, an urge to, to use or draw on in some way. Mm. Um, but then I can go all the way back to school and, and think like the first pieces I was writing started with, I was thinking of Isai, um, I wrote, a, 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 and Paganini when I was playing the violin, so I wrote theme and variations, and mm. I wrote uh, a piece, a kind of call, uh, a piece in the in the, in the the sort of 16th century polyphonic style, mm. roughly sort of Tannis yeah. Palestrina, because that's what I was singing at the time, and I wrote um, a fugue, a bit, I tried to do Bach. Mm. So I was quite ambitious, but at that time, those were the things I was listening to. Yeah, that's really interesting. Is so you say you you play the violin um, yeah. and piano. Um, yeah. Do they um, influence how you write for things? Do you ever yeah. are you ever biased to write to, for those instruments? Mm. In, yeah, maybe. Not well. It's I'm not so much biased. Um, I guess back then, playing the violin, I, 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 that was the the repertoire that I was most interested in. That was the stuff that was having its impact on me, the most. Um, so I was listening to all, all, all the kind of classic violin concertos and stuff mm. and uh, obsessively watching videos of Maxim Vengerov playing Sibelius or whatever. And um, um, so with, uh, with the piano, I actually learned that, le- I've learned that mostly myself, but quite late. Mm. So I would say in a funny way, that's that had a bigger impact on my writing in that um, to start with, everything was centered around G. It was a kind of like somebody described my music 
generally being like mobile music in G. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Just because that's where my hands sat at, at the piano and that's where I did everything. I wasn't yeah. really thinking beyond what my hands could do at the piano. Mm. And then the more you the more um you, you get the 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 more a facility you have mm. at the keyboard, I guess that has an that has an impact. Yeah, that's really interesting. How about kind of other instruments? <clears throat> what do you, if you're thinking of writing something new, say yeah. just, you know, because you want to, so it's not a commission or anything, it's just you want to do it, um, would you pick the ensemble first or is it based on the kind of interpretation you want to do or mm. is there sort of, is there any instrument you particularly like to write for? Um, I don't know. It's funny because I don't think I generally... Um, find inspiration in the instruments themselves it's more people or um you like i said kind of abstract ideas or, mm. or things things that are um other than music that that kind of suggest an idea that might be fun and then mm. and then generally i find the ensemble comes later yeah so it will it will kind of gradually emerge mm. um yeah so 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 yeah generally if if there's a performer i really like or something but the, the thing is i don't get a huge amount of opportunity to just write the thing that i want to write whatever yeah. it is i want to write i've got lots of ideas and all sorts of things that i want to do mm. um but yeah i mean at the moment i've got the beginnings of a a new choral piece um that's just a setting of a psalm but that was because um I can't remember what led to to working on that. I found the text. I wanted to do a collection of psalm settings that were um, suitable, maybe for amateur choirs, but really, but kind of vivid and bright and mm. colourful. And um, so that, so I guess that 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 came. The idea for that came not by way of the ensemble, but by way of um, just a general idea. That sounds really interesting. And talking about kind of choral music, you've. Um... I was just kind of looking, have a little stalk on your website to see what kind of projects you've been up to. And a couple of years ago, you did something for the Westminster Choristers Service. Could you expand on what you did for yeah. that? Yes. Yeah. So um, I have, um, I'm really fond of Westminster Abbey generally. Just I, I, a friend of mine, um, fabulous organist called Martin Ford, who I was at university with, he, uh, for a period, was. Um, assistant organist there um, and I during that time I wrote a couple of pieces for him um, and we spent a lot of time in there at night time wow. when there was you know it was a kind of empty space but this absolutely amazing kind of darkened majestic wonderful mm. space we were there in the organ loft and exploring the organ, he was, and, and it was a kind of, kind of like a, uh, a process, almost like orchestration, like dealing with the colours that the organ can um, make. Uh, and he's, you know, an expert, so yeah. it, was, it was really fabulous. So, so I did a lot of writing um, for him, a, a bit of writing for him there, and that was a sort of way in, at the Abbey. And then <clears throat> later on, I had um, my auntie Alex. Oh, she, and not me, by the way. <laughs> no, 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 not you, not you. My auntie Alex, uh, she was kind enough to um, agree to to uh, help fund some study for me. I went back to the Guildhall to do uh, uh, a second master's in opera making. 
and uh, not second in opera making, just a second master. <laughs> it was in opera making. And uh, she, she gave me a bit of money uh, on the basis that I would um, write a piece for that money. Um, so we were trying to think like who to do that for. Ultimately, I went to see James O'Donnell at um, the Abbey and um, um, and he was generous enough to, to say, yeah, write something for the choristers. And he said that he'd, he'd need, um, it would be useful to have um, a setting of the evening service, which is the Magnificat and Nunc Dimittis, which they sing. I think, I don't know exactly how often the, the choristers do it on their own, but mm, could be twice a month, once a month, possibly once a month. Mm. But they need they need services and there's not a huge repertoire. So so yeah, I, I wrote um a new setting of of that the the Mag and Nunk for them. Um I spent quite a bit of time um working on that at an organ up in Blackheath. Mm. I'm not I'm not a very good organist, but I, I'm not in fact I'm not an organist at all. I'm terrible. <laughs> um <clears throat> but it's really fun to play on one. Yeah. And it's um it's an, it's like a big synthesizer basically so i spent a lot of time there writing that and um and then yeah they did it a couple of times last year so hopefully it will find its way into the re- into the repertoire for the trebles yeah um i think they enjoyed it so, very yeah, good really so that's really experience. it's interesting taking some uh obviously text that's already been written that you've not written especially something like that that's you know as old as time really how, yeah. how do you go about making new music for old Text. text oh god i don't know there's so how many, many settings are there, there of are that so many settings um and also it's funny because there, i suppose there are there are kind of um hit points there are moments in the text that everyone knows as you know this is this is a moment like in the nunk um to be a light to light in the gentiles that ah, bit nice right <laughs> that bit it's come to me um, <laughs> like a light bulb <laughs> like a light bulb yeah <laughs> Uh, no, that bit is like this composer. It's it's like a gift to a composer to mm-hmm. be a light, because I suppose if you think of music as a as a kind of um, it's like a vehicle. It's it's like a metaphorical language, isn't it? So if you've got this this image to mm. be a light, to light in the Gentiles, to be a light, it's this huge explosive moment. That's that's like people who know the text will be going, okay, well, I wonder what the composer's going to do with this. Yeah, and. Um, there's some pressure. I can't remember how we got onto this, but 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 I, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I felt the pressure when I was writing it. It was kind of afterwards. I think somebody said to me, "Oh, interesting what you did with that moment." Yeah. And actually, I I kept it quite. Um, it, I didn't make it a kind of outburst, which is the temptation. It was more of a. Um, it was sort of prayerful. Um, I had. A, soloist mm-hmm. over the top of something else it was a kind of mm. soaring thing rather than a, oh very nice yeah, that sounds lovely like soaring soaring trebles yeah. <laughs> oh that sounds really good it's really interesting you know setting that kind of old text to new music I guess it's something that I mean I, I I've never composed it's not never been something that I've been able to hone my skills into doing really well effectively anyway gave yeah. it a go and it didn't work so um but yeah I, I feel keep I, trying yeah I feel like that that's interesting though setting something that has been done quite a lot mm. you know over, over the whole world and and making it kind of your own and interesting people listening out for stuff as well yeah. do you find do you ever find that with other stuff the, the pressure of not necessarily writing it but premiering new works do you feel pressure at all from mm. 
yeah. people or um, no one yeah, in particular, yeah. but just like general. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Um, it's not it pr- probably not just confined to a premiere though. I would say it, it that's a kind of mm. pressure. It's a burden that you, I personally feel, um, whenever with every piece that I write, I suppose because unless you're writing it just for yourself, at some point you're going to have to. Mm bear yourself <laughs> to, yeah. to an audience you're going to have to share it and um yeah sometimes it's different it's hard to it's hard to get to a point where you're like okay now it's finished and now it's ready yeah. to for an audience to hear it or to witness it mm. and then um yeah and I mean I'm always tossing up between stylistic things certain people will like this and get this certain people will maybe think it's too cheesy or maybe it's mm. too uh academic or whatever so and that's the same when you've got a commission that's those are all the, the those are the sort of questions that come up you know yeah. who, who are you writing this piece for and um what what will they want and how how can you um kind of you can fulfill that brief but also mm. somehow keep it yours and, and say that's something interesting. That you want to say, you know? how much does a a venue affect the way that you write something so obviously for the settings um for the for that quiet Westminster that the venue is really important surely mm. for mm. something like that but how about something that's not specifically for a venue do you think about that where it not necessarily just premieres but where it could be played is it kind of acoustics mm. and stuff ever is it ever at the forefront or ever something you well, really think about? I, well, it's interesting you say that about the Abbey <clears throat> because, I mean, in a way, the piece can... It's, it's, the venue's important in its function in that this is a functional piece, it's a mm. liturgical piece. Um, but the... And, and obviously there are some specific, uh, you know, like locational aspects to take, physical things you have to take in into account like I remember talking to James O'Donnell about the um where the organ is situated um in relation to the choir and the stalls there's actually quite a big distance so there are certain things I might write that um or I did write at one point where it would be um I think the the, the boys would have been a bit um exposed in a way or it just wouldn't quite hang together so easily and stuff so so yeah that that um definitely is a part of it um I suppose, yeah, in a, in a practical way, it's it's often in my mind. I'm just thinking there was another piece I did for Harrow School, um, uh, which was um, a Christmas carol. And they, there was a specific locational aspect to that. Mm. In that, during that service, they have two choirs at play. So there's a, an older, um, essentially men's voices choir up in the... Uh, organ loft balcony mm. bit and then and then there's the I think it's the chapel choir <clears throat> down in the stalls so you'd have the congregation facing the chapel choir and then the men men uh, the older boys <laughs> yeah up in the balcony mm. and then the organ up there which is kind of playing down the side of the building so it's quite a weird situation yeah. but that definitely became part of the piece in that it and it, it, it ended up being a piece that was a sort of dialogue between those choirs so it was it was about mm. Um, uh, the, the the chapel choir became it was the sh- the shepherd and the angel mm. 
and the, the, the choir became the angel slash angels ah, at that at nice. the right point. And then the, in the balcony, we had these the shepherds, which were, I took a text from um, a Palestinian poet, essentially, mm. somebody who writes a specific or recites, improvises a specific kind of Middle Eastern yeah. um, poetry mm-hmm. um, and then set that. So it was this kind of weird time shifting dialogue between those two things, and that that was kind of yeah. came out because of the space. Yeah. So sometimes the space generates drama, I think. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Do you have a, a favorite venue you've ever um, had worked performed in, other than Westminster Abbey? I love Westminster Abbey <laughs> um, venues. Um, <laughs> Albert Hall. <laughs> The Albert Hall. Yeah, that was great. Oh, well, yeah. So, so I had an organ piece there in the 2017 proms. Oh, amazing. Uh, uh, so amazing um, organist William Whitehead uh, played this toccata and a new a, a little piece that I wrote for his um, project called the Orgelbuchlein Project. Oh, cool. It's a project to to essentially complete Bach's mm. um, little organ book. And... Um, yeah, that was cool. I wouldn't say it's my favourite though. It was. No. Just, I just said that because I was just thinking. But, but so that venue. was an experience. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. having and, a, and an amazing organ, an amazing organist. But yeah, no, I mean, it's any sort of intimate venues you like. I'm just trying to think. Um, something different. I I just remembered doing something in the back of a pub in Dalston, which was quite fun. <laughs> Did a piece called Chicago. Um, which is for the workers' union ensemble with tape, sort of silly piece about um, such self-reflective piece, mm. kind not not reflecting myself but the Shikon itself. Yeah. So it was, it was. I used a bit of text from the Wikipedia page on the Shikon. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. Ven- Ven- I love Westminster Abbey because it's got history for me and with other people, mm. and also I pro- propose to my wife in there so, oh that's really so nice yeah i suppose it's it's like a well yeah it's got a yeah when there's sentimental there, then. attachment yeah. then yeah um yeah oh that's really nice oh, mm. very wholesome actually yeah, um yeah. moving swiftly on from the wholesomeness um <laughs> so uh recently you've done a really cool project with opera north and uh sitar player jazz deep Singh dagan which looks so interesting um and you orchestrated a piece called aria is that that's how you right. say aria, aria yeah. um and I was I was reading about it earlier and I super interesting. I mean I love I love Indian classical music. It's something I I listen to a lot. Really? Just to focus and to write and stuff. I'm giving away all my tricks here. Um and I listened to it a lot when I was at uni as well mm. and it's just something I I really I don't know, I really connect with and it feels like you did as well. Can yeah, you tell me a bit, a bit about the project because it looks really yeah. interesting. Yes, I can. Um it was super interesting. Um so I uh was taken on for this as an arranger back in September, October, roughly. And we were working towards a workshop with Opera North up in Leeds in December. <laughs> um, but the idea was that I'd meet uh, Jazz Deep, um, Jazz, and um, he, and um, essentially help him realise uh, this this massive project. So, so the idea was that he, he wanted to write a concerto for sitar and orchestra. Um, I think he started off w- with the idea that he he'd write just for sitar and strings mm-hmm. because he'd previously written a, a piece for sitar and string quartet, where the bulk of the material came from, and um, he 
Uh, I think then there was a recommendation to bring winds in, but no brass. Uh, we ch Ooh. chose not to use brass, actually. <laughs> Although at the Moving end... Moving on. <laughs> I know, yeah. no, at the end, I kind of wish we'd done it. Um, but obviously there's a balance issue when it comes to writing. I mean, that's fair. That is fair. Um, and there was already a balance issue. But no, I mean, more interestingly, the, 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 there, was a, there was obviously a kind of meeting of cultural, uh, of, of traditions um, that was really interesting. Um, so when we started talking, it was kind of like a, uh, just a long exchange of what we're used to and like talking about... He, he, he was amazing in telling me all about the, the way that he learns and the... Um, the, some of the theory and some of the stuff that that's governing how he's written these um, this material rhythmic the way that his they work with rhythmic cycles mm. cycles of you know however many beats um, and the rag and uh, it's yeah it was really interesting because then I guess the my role was partly to sort of translate some of the stuff to make sure that a western musician would be happy to just have the music put in front of them and and off they go yeah i guess it's kind of merging the two very different sounding kind of worlds together isn't it and finding it, the sitar kind of finding its feet within the orchestra i guess yeah i think that was definitely part of the narrative that was yeah. part of the story that jazz wanted to tell and um it's interesting because Jazz, I think, always wanted freedom. You know, he always wanted to... He, I think he was... Because it's so much part of the Indian tradition to improvise and to be free to kind of explore the rag when they, in, in an alap, for instance. Mm. It's all about... as My understanding is that it's all, it's all about getting to the... Trying to convey the essence of this rag. And they're so... I've, I've started watching some videos just uh, on YouTube talking about different rags... Um, and how they work and the and the the gradual evolution of them. They become so complex, you know, how each each note within a rug has its own function and it's got its own mm. history about how, how it's treated and how you might ornament. And it's wow. not just about because some rugs will have um I haven't said but a rug, for those that don't know, is essentially like a Western mode, but it's not treated as as um simply as a mode. Yeah. And it's um yeah, you can even have two or more, I think, rugs with the same notes, exactly the same notes, but then treated differently in terms of how they're ornamented and, and which notes yeah. you would lean on and all this stuff. So, um, so yeah, so Jazz was definitely, he, he, he wanted freedom. and um, But then obviously Western, a Western orchestra need, there, there are the kind of limits in terms of how much freedom mm. they are willing to allow or are willing to um uh explore you know yeah how did you um kind of remedy that then the kind of medium between having a really free and easy kind of <laughs> soloist and and not so free and easy and that's not in any derogatory way it's more just the way that yeah. western classical orchestras are oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know how did you kind of remedy well there was there, it wasn't so much a remedy it was just we set it up Jazz, Jazz just made sure that he had moments where he could just soar mm. and be free. So there'd be a solo. Yeah. And sometimes he was writing, um, you know, like chordal material that would tick along within the rug mm. um, while he 
played a sort of a LARP over the top. Um, otherwise, for the for the for the orchestra, I, I, it was generally um, the rule. Generally, was that it needed to be notated and it needed to be fixed. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so there was a sort of exchange. There were there were there's one moment I can think of where the first the, the leader of the orchestra as a soloist was playing freely in a kind of dialogue with jazz. Mm. Um, I would have maybe liked to do more of that or explore it more. I think there's more scope to explore. Absolutely, that, that yeah. kind of because actually Western musicians are well up for for it. It's just it has to be there needs to be enough information because it's not part of the tradition for us really mm. to yeah. It, maybe in jazz there's there's a there's an analogous um, yeah skill but yeah for classical musicians in an orchestra if you say just improvise on this then mm. they'll generally freak out I think yeah that's really interesting <laughs> I mean obviously it must have really tested your kind of basic theory knowledge of able being able to yeah. kind of orchestrate for something you may have orchestrated for before um and something you may not have even gone near before how did you kind of do you mean in terms I... of the material or the the instrument um, yeah, more kind of the orchestration of it. How did you approach that with your kind of kind of Western mind, I suppose? Well, um, it, to be honest, it wasn't it, that wasn't so difficult because the, the material was there, and jazz is pretty good actually at notating stuff. Mm. Um, there, there are only certain things to kind of massage a bit yeah just to, to make sure it's in the in the kind of the easiest most readable sure version yeah that's all um and generally that, that that was generally rhythmic stuff as far as i can remember it was generally dealing with um it, jazz might have been thinking in a 10 beat time cycle um and had written in five four when actually the feeling as a western orchestral musician might look at it it would be easier to read um I think it ended up being in generally five eight actually, mm. just because that was the way the phrases the phrasing was working for them. But then, but then, what was more difficult was to try to maintain a feeling of how it was written. So feeling the overarching fives. Mm-hmm. There was another bit that had that, and um, but then, uh, but then, try to uh, present it in a in a kind of easily readable way within those fives because mm. there were some tricky little rhythmic games that yeah. he was playing which were really fun yeah um but tough yeah that sounds like a really great challenge though for you as kind of a yeah a musician in general really it seems like a really great kind of <clears throat> real challenge for you i think that's the challenge all that it, with every piece in a way is mm. because composition is um so much about notation mm. and that's what you know i'm talking about about that with the kids that I'm teaching when we're doing composition, it's it's just it, finding ways, the best possible ways to write down the things that you, mm. you might have played on the piano or you know the things that you're thinking or whatever, so that so that you'll get the appropriate yeah. um, result from absolutely. a musician that looks at it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's super interesting. I'm really interested to to hear more about uh, hear more of the piece actually. Really? Yeah. That'd be brilliant. Well, there's another three performances. Brilliant. Well, I'll put that up and what, yeah. what that is. I think that'd be brilliant. Um, have you got any <clears throat> interesting projects coming up or yeah. that you can tell me about? <laughs> yes. Um, well, f- in a way, this, t- talking about that Indian stuff, it, it is 
feeding a little bit into a, in, into a very early stages project. Um, I'm working on the beginnings of um, what might be a full length opera, but that's and that's with a, uh, this wonderful writer I've worked with before called Zoe Palmer. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, we've just had a bit of um, development support from the Royal Opera House and Leicester Curve. Mm. Uh, so we're going through the, the early processes of, you know, um, creating story and thinking oh, very about exciting. sketching. I've been sketching lots of material, but the, the because it just happens to be at a time when I'm, I've been working with an Indian musician, um, some of that stuff is filtering its mm. way into into what I'm writing. So, so yeah, keep your eyes and ears peeled for um, a full length Very opera good. Of, of some, I don't want to talk too much about you know, what the content of it because it's such early oh, days. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll wait for the surprise for that one. That sounds really interesting. And actually, I really like the idea of that, that kind of Indian project really feeding into the next thing that you're doing. I find that really, yeah. that must be really pleasing as a composer yeah. to be able to go I've learned something from this I'm going to take yeah, it forward I that must be brilliant generally if, if I imagine for any anybody that is is um you know creating as part of whatever it is mm. they're doing that they will always if that's a if that's a passion then I imagine they'll always be thinking of what they can sort of nab from whatever yeah. experience they're having oh that's really brilliant well I mean thank you so much for joining me Danny it's been really great to just to have a chat really about your your work and all the stuff that you're up to really exciting um so yeah if you want to check out any of danny's work you can go onto his websites there's stuff on there uh social media or whatever um and yeah so thank you so much for coming on it's been great we enjoyed it I'd like to thank Daniel Salib and Freya Riding for joining me on this podcast, Ross Davidson for mastering the podcast, and Ben Gaunt for composing the brand new Classical Alex Burns jingle. You've been listening to episode 5 of Conversations with a Musicologist. Keep up to date with the Classical Alex Burns 365 challenge by visiting the website, and remember to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a beat.